The Simon Filer Podcast, giving authors a platform. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Well, I've spent the last three days on one wild ride with Sean O'Gorman and my dark companion, the long ride back from PTSD, depression and the brink of suicide. Fortunately, Sean is a survivor and although his book is edge of your seat stuff at times, he's pulled through the other side. And his message is absolutely vital for anyone who has suffered or in particular still suffering with these killer diseases. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, Simon. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm going to start off really light first. Sure. How was it in there narrating your audio book? It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. I think it's part of my um, narcissistic personality. I like to hear my own story, maybe. <laughs> no, it was really painless. And so much thanks to your professionalism. It was great. Sweet. Well, you did a great job. Hardly any mistakes in there. Thank you. Did you practice and practice no, and practice? No, I didn't, actually. <laughs> That's not how, as, as you listen to my book, you realise I'm not a practiser. <laughs> no, 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 no. All right. Well, your audio book definitely hits hard and right from the get-go with you announcing that your dark companion is actually the constant thought of suicide. Yeah. What? Tell me, what was the catalyst to actually writing that sentence down? Yeah, sure. When I look back on it, so I'm 51 now and I wrote the book about five years ago. I uh, had struggled so much in my life with suicidal thoughts. And as I was dealt with other people, helped other people, I realized it wasn't uncommon. And it was the best way for me to describe it because it was something that was always just in the back of my mind. So that sort of thought was there. And like I say in the book, it's sort of it was like a parachute for me because I thought if life gets tougher, I have that get out of jail sort of card as, as weird as that sounds so it was like having yes a companion. you just heard that <laughs> yeah so it's like having a companion with me that was those suicidal thoughts so it became so normal isn't the word but it became so um just part of my life and part of who i was that it was just always there yeah that's weird, mm. that's weird. well from my my point of view obviously i've also had you know those thoughts occasionally but sure. certainly not like my bff hanging next yeah, to me yeah yeah so you talk a fair bit about growing up in My Dark Companion when you were a boy and having thoughts about not being good enough. Yep. Have you been able to pinpoint where these started? Yeah, for sure. I think so much of it is actually generational. So it's um, we were the good Irish Catholic lower middle class family in Australia. In the, I was born in 1970. So my mum and dad are product of their parents who literally grew up through the Great Depression. So I think in a lot of ways, that sort of feeling of misery, difficulty, challenge is very much just a part of that culture, mm. and very much a part of that, like what's now 100 years ago, seems like a 1,000 years ago from where we live today yeah. to where they live, where they didn't have food, they had to line up, there was people dying in the street in the Great Depression. So I think a lot of it was just handed down. And my thing that I realise now, it's science, 90 to 95% of our personality is formed by eight years of age. Mm. And who are the people who are the most impactful as parents yeah. and teachers and things? But then you go, so I've only got to go two generations back, my parents and my grandparents, to get to the Great Depression. So I go, well, no wonder I still had those feelings of difficulty, challenge, lack of self-worth. Mm. Just it's, handed down. It's probably in, intrinsically in your DNA somehow as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. So um, do you feel like you're good enough now? And, you know, what Probably too good now. Probably <laughs> yeah. gone too far the other like, way. Who's this guy? Who's <laughs> That's this right. guy <laughs> There'll be people out there who think I went way too far the other way. The pendulum <laughs> overswung. But, yeah, absolutely. And the things I'm on for me now is just understanding so much of that childhood stuff. And it's why that's where psychologists go. I often say I feel like I'm Dr. Phil when I'm talking about tell me about your childhood. 
But that's where all my high performance clients I work with, business clients, anyone, that's where I start often because that's such a foundational part of who we are. So when we're born, we're like iPhones that have had no update, right? And then you get plugged in and download, whatever. So these days, yeah, I couldn't be happier, but that's because I also tell myself I couldn't be happier. I used to tell myself life sucks and it's hard. Now I literally am, people say, how are you? I couldn't be better. Life's amazing. That's how I speak. So I believe that. I take those actions. That's what turns out. Mm, that's really getting across the people on the planet, don't you reckon? It's the new, totally. the new thing. It's just simple. Yeah. What you think about, you create. Yeah. If you think life sucks, you're right. If you think it's awesome, yeah. you're right. If you think you've got no money, you don't. Totally. Yeah, it's, Abs- yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably, you know, a lot to, you could probably say that with your childhood as well. Everyone probably could, particularly growing up in the 80s. For sure. The parents didn't boost your egos up. No. And we've learned from that. And Totally. The kids now are more capable or believe they are more absolutely. capable because of that. But you also look like, look at, and we're, we're a similar age, our parents, like our grandparents, they, like our parents, look like Mother Teresa the way that they boosted us up compared to their parents. Yeah. So it's just evolution. Our kids, yeah. no doubt, will look at us and go, oh, you poor old simpleton dad. You did your best, but you're freaking hopeless. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's just Why life, right? Why did you do this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For sure. So funny. Uh, you also mentioned several times that you thought you were alone with your thoughts, mm. that you were the only one who felt like that on the whole planet. Yeah. So when did you start to realise that actually a lot of people have similar thoughts and that we're all struggling yeah. to find ourselves? I was mid-30s. Right. So when I went to um, when I went to the – I talk about a retreat that my auntie runs, who's an ex-Catholic nun on the Gold Coast here in Australia. I went to that and then I did a thing called Landmark Education. So those two things – had me go, oh, holy shit, there's heaps of other people that are really struggling with the same things. Mm. I'd seen plenty of mental health and suicide and different things in the police, alcoholism, all sorts of stuff. I think, you know, I'm not a mental health professional, but the greatest majority of our struggles comes back to lack of self-worth and value. And we all have it. And it's driven by that natural physiological wiring of us as animals to not want to stand out because you might get kicked out of your tribe and die. We want to stay safe. We want to stay comfortable. So we stay so small in our lives. And then you throw in the good Australian culture, which if you pop your head above the, the tall puppy syndrome, right, pop your head up, someone cuts you down. Cut you down. <laughs> that you've got to be so careful that what well, I was so careful, I was so worried what people thought. And I think that's what it's all based in. Yeah. We care too much what people think. Exactly right. You've got to not care about that stuff. And simply, and I talk to kids or whoever, a lot of people these days, and I go, the funny part is, Nobody gives a shit about you. They're so worried about what you think about them. Yeah, exactly. We're also caught up in our own head. Yeah, but they're not even worried about what you're thinking about them. They're just worrying about what they're thinking about generally, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like I've got kids and they say, you know, what if someone's going to look at me doing it? No one's looking Nobody at you. Nobody cares, They're mate. looking in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, they're looking at their selfie. Right. No one and cares. It, and it's so <laughs> arrogant and not deliberately so that we think, oh, like I, I remember going to, you know, I do keynote speeches with a couple hundred people now and all sorts of things that, you know, like doing my audio book here, I wasn't really that nervous. I'm quite confident in that stuff now. Yeah. But I used to be terrified socially. Like I would walk into a social environment yeah. and have a few beers so I wasn't socially anxious. Yeah. Now, if I and I know many people have that feeling. Now I look and think, what an arrogant way to think of yourself out of insecurity. Yeah. To go, oh, the whole place is going to give a shit what I'm doing when I walk in. No yeah. one even notices. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> That's right. It's absolutely Unless insane. Unless you're doing the keynote speaking, then they do. And then I'm happy now. <laughs> yeah. Look at me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you've come to the full I've come circle, full circle. Absolutely. Okay, more seriously, like Sean has seen so much serving in the Australian police force for 13 years, largely as part of the highly intensive and often volatile dog squad 
So tell me why you chose the police force as a career. Sure. Because you felt fairly insecure as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And you thought, totally. okay, let's do the police. I'll go and do that. <laughs> so my dad was a cop for 42 years. My yeah. uncle was a cop. And it was what I saw, my dad and I have very, very similar personality. So what I saw in him is that he actually made such a difference and helped so many people. And that seemed to give him, now I realised it's self-worth and value. Then I was like, oh, he's really confident, he's really brave. So I wanted to be more confident and brave, and I thought mm-hmm. if I do that job, that will give me that as a kid. Particularly the dog squad, he took me to a police academy open day here in Queensland Police well, when I was six or seven, right. mid-70s, and they had police dogs jumping through, you know, jumping over things and biting people, and do, and I was like, that looks like the best job in the world. <laughs> pretend biting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pretend, pretend biting, not just people in the crowd. Uh, and I was like, that looks awesome, I'm going to do that. And because it was just that, like, as kids want to be fighter pilots or... Yeah, of course. It was a thing I looked at. I was like, yeah, that's so cool. And it never really left me from that point on. Mm, Very cool. Your dad would have been proud? Yeah, he was really proud. And that's actually... Dad and I weren't close as father and son. Him and mum separated and divorced, so I didn't see him a lot. Um, I love him to death, but we've had our challenges. And I now realise we're just so very similar. He was challenged by his own things in his life. I look at him now and go, that was that's a really nice commonality we have as our police. To, like we got up got up to some stuff together on the police that no father and son on the planet probably wow. has. You know, chasing down guys with guns, car chasers, like yeah. fights, all this stuff where we would be in this really violent sort of incidents. And I'd look to my shoulder and there's my dad there. It was this pretty cool thing actually. Pretty yeah, cool thing to, yeah. to share. Wow, that's insane. I'm just thinking if, you know, I was in a situation with my daughter, I'd be going, get out, yeah. get out of here. And he, he loved it. And it was, we had this really healthy like, competition in and even that he was renowned for driving really fast, so was I and the police. So we would race to oh, violent, dear. like race each other to violent, <laughs> you know, life-threatening jobs makes no sense now. And, and afterwards. That's how you rocked back in the day. We'd be like, that was the most fun. How much fun was that together? Like it was, yeah, it was really bizarre. It's and pretty both cool, get but... re- reprimanded. Oh, yeah, <laughs> all the time. Yeah. All right, so. It's good that we're getting this light. You know, my questions are fairly heavy. That's okay. So how did the career end up compounding your feelings of unworthiness? Yeah. Being alone, ultimately leading, I guess, to the depression and PTSD. PTSD. It exacerbated it, I guess, but it's really, I think anything I did would have done the same thing. But because policing and the way I did it in the the unit I was in was pretty extreme in the sense of, I only realised this a few weeks ago, actually, I was, I went out and did some stuff with the dog squad about leadership and, and different things. Mm. And I was like, like, awesome guys. And there's only one that was there when I was there. So he's one of the older guys now, one of the bosses. And uh, what I realized, like, that's a job where you literally are following a German Shepherd dog who's got a harness and a piece of rope that you hold on to that's like 10 meters long. And that dog's job is to lead you to violent people. So it's leading you into ambushes, yeah. essentially. So Jeez, that... Terrible. The level of control I had to get out of my, get over my natural fear, insecurity, doubt was huge. So in the violent stuff, I was great. I could do that easily because there just wasn't time to worry about it. Yeah. And I realized I do have quite a strong drive to what I want, and I didn't sort of see that back then. The problem was that, and I say it's like a psychopathic drive to achieve what I want to achieve. I had that <laughs> focused <be> on <laughs> negativity, not positivity. Yeah, right? So yeah. I had that focused on self-destruction. Yeah. More into now the than violence, into yeah, the fast cars. Totally. Let's go. So it exacerbated more and more that feeling of lack of self-worth and value because the more brave, courageous things I did, other police would be like, oh, like you're a lunatic, you're crazy, which is Aussie vernacular for, you know, you, that you're so brave. And 
So the more they told me how brave and courageous I was, the more the like the twelve year old kid inside me was going, "No, you're not. That's all bullshit." So I had this this disparity of who people saw me as and who I saw me as, and then this fear of imposter syndrome of being caught out. But now I realise it was I was both of that, as we all are. Well, you probably only thought that you weren't that. You were that. I was you that. Just couldn't see that. And twenty years this year since I left the police, I um I've coached quite a number of one in particular, but a number of police I used to work with who are now in the corporate world or doing different things. One of them was a, is a national director of a big federal government agency. And he actually said to me, he goes, mate, and I've been told this many times. He goes, mate, when you turned up to a job, we were all really calm because we knew you'd handle it. I said, are you serious? I said, because when I turned up, I was shitting myself thinking you all thought I was an idiot. He's yeah. like, absolutely not. It's again just what people think. Yeah, wow. So do you think there's a lot of police personnel who feel the same? Everyone feels the same. And for police, I think especially it's challenging. More than even, I do a lot of work with military now as well as police and corporate. The people who you look at that you think the things they have would make them the happiest are often the people who are not the happiest. So for cops, if you think the very thing that's made me who I am today and why I'm really happy is I've been very open and vulnerable about my story and what I've done and I've done heaps of work and I'm really, like I don't have anything to hide. If anybody listens to this podcast who knows me, and I go, I was cocky and arrogant, I did this, they'd go, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's like if somebody comes out of the woodwork and goes, you were this guy 20 years ago, I'm like, yeah, I wrote that in my book or or whatever. Where you think police turn up to violent, horrible situations that they have to solve without showing any fear, without showing any insecurity. So if, if you and I were in a, in a relationship and we had a DV incident here, the cops turn up, they can't turn up and go, oh, look, we're not really sure what to do. They've got to turn up and go, we know what to do, yeah. even if they freaking don't. Yeah, right. Because everybody's looking to them to solve the, the situation. Yeah. So then that compounds the fact that they've got to pretend to be strong and not impacted and all of that. And then we expect them to also be really emotionally vulnerable and connected to the community, their families, their whatever. Yeah, it's a freaking nightmare. Yeah, that's a it's a minefield. Absolutely. And how they have to go home then and put on a brave face to mm. their wife. And, and just have a normal day. Jeez. So you go to, you know. Yeah, whatever violence they're in, then they've got to go home and just be normal mum or dad. Yeah, really tough. Is there any support for them? It's better than it was, but still not great. There's a lot of things that, and I've dealt with a number of different agencies around the country, uh, and they all think they all have the the right intention. The execution's not great. Mm. The execution's not great because it's similar. uh, If you have somebody that you in your life that's died of cancer, I've never had that, so I can. I go, that's really sad, I feel for you, but I don't get it. The people who are implementing these mental health things or support often haven't been in that scenario themselves. Often, this is a generalisation, but police who are in very senior, like the executive leadership teams of, of policing agencies, normally haven't done a lot of street work because they went into more of that the management yeah, side of the, of the police. So invariably, they probably haven't dealt with a lot of that themselves, so they don't get it. And we bring in psychologists, and psychologists have an amazing place in policing or military or wherever, but only if it's delivered in a way that the police respond to. So the overwhelming feedback I get from police, from military, is they go, you understand it, you've been where I've been in whatever that scenario yeah. is. I've done, I've done talks with psychologists and that before where I, tell, I say exactly the same thing the psychologist said with some war stories and my language and a different way of interacting. Yeah. And people go, oh, that was brilliant. But it's the same information. But they see me as one of them, yeah, of so they accept it more. Yeah. Well, that was another question I was going to say. Writing the book, 
did you have any ambitions when you began writing it about helping the police, you know, and, be, and being that guy? Funnily enough, the opposite. I, when I left, I had a real hatred to the police department, cops in general, just out of fear. It was not looking like a coward. I wasn't... You were worried about looking like a coward. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't... Um, I was going to say I wasn't well supported. The police commissioner at the time was friends with my old man, and he was amazing. And he said to me, you can go anywhere in the police you want to go. But I didn't... I was too far gone. Now, he was supportive in the sense of what can I do for you? I was like, well, I don't freaking know. And... But there wasn't a lot of other psychological support. There wasn't people who really understood it. And I still don't think there's a lot. I still get a lot of police. I, I dealt with someone recently who was in a really serious critical incident a, a period of time ago. And they came to me through someone else. I didn't know them. I sat with them for like two or three hours. Don't charge them, of course. And I'm just chatting to them. I try this. What about that? What about that? They're like, holy shit. That's it. That's it. People read my book and cops definitely, but all sorts of people go, that's my story. It's exactly what it's like. Mm. And I just sat and spoke to this person and then I put them on to a psychologist I know who's an ex-police officer, ex-AFP cop, who runs their own psychology practice here in Brisbane specifically. Not specifically for police, but they do a lot of work with police. And the police officer texts me. They got into this friend of mine like three days later and he's got a massive waiting list. I just rang and said, hey, this person really needs you. Slot him in. He's an awesome dude. And they text me, the person after they saw him and said, oh, my God, I finally feel like I'm supported. Someone's got my back. And it was over a year ago that this incident. So they still don't feel like they're supported. And there's a whole lot of endemic culture and leadership issues. But because most industries aren't focused on people, they're focused on the thing they're doing. And that's where we fall down. Everyone's in the people business. So I may have an opportunity. They've asked me to go and um, one person in the police has asked me to go and do some help them write a, a, a syllabus for some leadership training. Right. We'll see if that happens. I've got my... Um, You've got to push that because I, I reckon... Absolutely. I mean, you would know that those guys need that sort of support. 100%. You weren't alone. We had all that conversation about, you know, you're not the only one with these thoughts. Totally. Like, you need... But it's funny. People don't... within the department um, often push back on me, the bosses, because I'm not controllable, right, under their umbrella in the well, sense of... Yeah. And especially in the department I was in, I'm, I was, my dad was have reputation of doing what was necessary, not what was <laughs> Rebels. popular, you know, right? So yeah. in some ways they're sort of like, well, if I bring him back, what's he going to say? Because yeah. I won't go. Well, hopefully he'll listen to your audio book. Hopefully. I might send it might, to Yeah, him. it might change his <laughs> mind. Because I even think even today would be more dire with the situation with COVID globally. Oh. You know, there'd be, but it's uh, we won't talk about that. But it's not, <laughs> and it's for police, like for anyone, COVID's been really challenging, right? But. I also think there's another thing, and for your listeners who never had anything to do with police, most people only see cops when they get a traffic ticket. And a lot of those traffic guys are really angry guys because they spend all day being abused by people giving tickets. I don't know why you'd want to do that job. Worst job in the police. Do they want to? Yeah, a lot of them do. Really? Okay. Which is so weird. Yeah. Um, Or they've come to your house for a domestic, or they've come, like, it's something pretty severe has happened in your life if you've had an interaction with the police officer. Absolutely. I think everyone's always thinking, oh my God, it's the police. Exactly. Cops just don't turn up and knock on your door and go, hey, let's have a cup of tea, you're killing it. Yeah. (laughs) I was at a client's house recently, and he, a cop knocked on the door when him him and I were in his, his kitchen, and this cop knocked on the door, a detective, and had a, their badge, obviously. And my initial thing was, oh, what do they want? Like, I was quite nervous. Yeah, right. But I was like, what, what, what are you doing, you know? <laughs> right? So it's so people don't understand that. Then these days they've got cameras, like it's body cameras, 
phones. Yeah. There's a real hatred towards police with Black Lives Matter, internationally, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I know so many police, 99% of police, 99.9% do it because they want to help. But you will always have a small number of dickheads in every job. It doesn't yeah. matter what the job is. They're the ones we focus on. So it's a, I think it's a much tougher job now. If they make a mistake, which is human, they can often get crucified for it. Mm. Well, I guess you're happy that you're out of that industry. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess, eh? I'm too old to be jumping fences, <laughs> chasing people. Yeah. Well, I even wanted to go a bit deeper and discuss sure. your dark companion now. Do. So you used your suicidal thoughts as backup plan. You said it earlier. Mm-hmm. So if things didn't, you know, turn mm. out, you could always jump that ship, basically, yep. in a manner of speaking. So how, where did that come from? Where did the thoughts come gen- from? You said generational. Or, yeah, so my dad, many, many years ago, I heard him say he would, I've got an idea what had happened, but I won't go into detail, but he was on the phone. We had a shed at the back of our house where we, um, he used to work on cars. So it was one of his hobbies. And I walked in there and I heard him slam the phone down and say to himself, if it gets any worse, I'll blow my head off. So he didn't say it to me. He didn't know I was there. Um, I was about seven, I reckon. And I think from then it stuck. And him and yeah, I have had... Yeah, that makes perfect sense because you would have thought, oh, he's got that backup plan. That's going to be my backup plan. And I worshipped him. I idolised my old man. Mm. So that was all, well, that must be what it's like. Yeah. So it, um, like my pop struggled a lot with depression and things after World War Two, which wasn't diagnosed. Yeah. So I look at it and go, I think it's probably generational. Yeah. Um. So is he still hanging around, that dark companion? No, not at all. So awesome. Even reading the book back now, it's five years since I wrote it, like I said, a few times. It's not at all, and it's even stealing all my questions. (laughs) (laughs) Even to the point where I don't. um, It just never crosses my mind. Even the challenge of my girls. I haven't. I don't see my daughters very much for the last couple of years. They're sixteen and thirteen. I love them to death. Even that now, I'm sort of got a good handle on it because I go on a long enough timeline. You always win if you put the effort in and you just stay committed. You always win. So I'm like, oh well. I've got a life I love because I've worked so freaking hard for 20 years to build it. Mm. I don't need to escape it. Mm. So it's just not, the thoughts aren't there anymore. It's literally not there. So you've got to follow your heart, don't you? Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. If you're in a dead-end job that you don't like doing or you don't like your boss or you don't like getting up any morning, don't do it. Absolutely. Don't do it. Do something else. Do something that you really like doing. Most people at our age are like in a mediocre, pretty miserable life sliding into retirement and hopefully happiness. I go... With all uh, respect to people who you might listen who play golf, I go, shoot me in the face before I play golf or do my head in. I've tried to play it. I hated it. It was just a way to drink more. It was an excuse. I don't like it. So I'm like, what if I retire in nine years' time at 60, what, what will I do? And I'm I would, doing this. <laughs> exactly. So I would go out and volunteer or do whatever. And it's often when I talk to people, that's what they want. I go, I've built a business now where I do that as my career. Mm. And I can do it till I'm 90. We've got so much time. So if you hate what you're doing and you're our age or you're 60 or you're 70, do something. Because if you're 70 and you're going to live to 85, is it not worth 15 years of happiness? Because you're still going to live it anyway. you just got to find out what you like doing, basically. And if that happens to be drawing or painting or, you know, whatever, if gardening, do that. And I think it's simple. And this I say this to clients mine all the time. If you won $10 million in the lotto tomorrow, you went travelled, you did all the thing you want to do for two years and then you're bored shitless because you've travelled everywhere, you've done all the stuff you wanted. What would you do all day? And that's normally the answer. I'd make audio books. Exactly. That's yeah. I'd, I'd talk about myself. Yeah. Like my business. <laughs> really? I'm joking. <laughs> that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you said that you um, 
printed it. You wrote the book years ago now, about five years ago. Yeah. So just reading it then, what sort of emotions were brought up? What were you thinking? Yeah, I was really – the stuff about my daughters and marriage separation was really pretty emotional. Um, but apart from that, it's the overwhelming sense of, holy shit, even in the last five years I've grown so much. Mm. So reading it now, it's sort of like going back into – well, it literally it's going back into my mind five years ago or six years ago, whatever it was. And I'm looking at it going, holy shit, it's so different now to then. Like I'm so much more positive, so much happier. Some of the things I said in there, like about, oh, my dark companion's ingrained in me. I go, no, what's well, not. That negativity and fear's always there, but it's not. Mm. So even in five years, I've fundamentally changed the way I think. So cool. It was actually a really, really cool experience. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad. Um, so what have you been up to basically, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing now? Yeah, so the Strong Life Project, my business, does a handful of things. So I do podcasts every day. I've done 2,100 episodes nearly over the last five or six years. Smashing that 10 minutes, Yeah, 10 minutes a day just on different topics. Awesome. Just normally driving in the car. Um, Recording it when you're driving in the car? Yeah, just on my phone. Okay. So I, of course, you're driving? Of course I pull over to start it recording. I wouldn't, <laughs> like a good copper. <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be breaking the law. Um, so I, that's, I do that. I do a lot of keynotes and workshops, like keynotes for corporates, coaching, uh, a lot of stuff around leadership and culture. Do a lot of one-on-one high-performance stuff with CEOs, business owners. The main part of what I do is just around human behavior and high-performance. And any opportunity that I get to do that, I do that. So yeah. it's best job ever. Excellent. So anyone listening, if they want to contact you, they can contact you? They certainly can at thestronglifeproject.com. Awesome. Well, I highly recommend having a listen to My Dark Companion. Sean's narration is outstanding. I won't have to do much editing from... How you went in there. That Thank was awesome. You. I think invaluable messages right throughout the whole book and yeah, very dark to begin with, but it's like a yeah, beautiful light at the end of it. So Thanks so much. I was appreciate awesome. you working with me and coming Thank on my you. podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining the Simon Filer Podcast. What's your story? Contact Simon for a chat at Brisbane Audio Book Production.com.